Today I want to talk about cacarophobia. Do you know what that is? Oh, come on, do something. Like smile with your eyes or with your nose or something. Cacarophobia is, is uh, the title of, of today's message. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, in case you don't like big words, here's one for you. Hippopotamonstrosisequipedaliophobia means the fear of long words. Welcome back to church, everybody. Yeah? The fear of long words. Um, today we are going to deal with that one. I'll tell you what it means in a minute. It's a real word. Cacarophobia. None of you have looked it up yet in your phones, no. Um, we'll get there in a second. My favorite TED Talk is by a guy called Ken Robinson. And it's entitled, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Has any, anybody watched that TED Talk? Well, yeah, we listened. Yeah, Jude's watched it, and Rich and I listened to it on the way to school during the week. TED Talks, if you've never heard of them, a TED Talk is where basically somebody gets about 18 minutes to talk about something that is important to them or that they're researching or whatever. And they can't waffle because they're on a strict time limit and, and they're actually brilliant. I enjoy watching them. But this one is, the think, maybe about number two or three in the top ten all-time TED Talks. And this guy talks about schools and whether or not our education system kills creativity. And he says that kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I could tell you a funny story from one of the kids' schools this week where a child had a go at saying a word uh, and messed it up, but I'm not going to. For It was in a biology lesson, and I can't quite uh, give you the full details of it. But kids will generally have a go. If they're not entirely sure about something, they will still usually give it a shot. But as they grow older, there is a fear that creeps in that sort of beats that out of them where they are no longer willing to have a risk and they're no longer willing to have a go. Sir Ken goes on to say that we are now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst things you can make. Is that not the case? At the end of 14 years of education, you sit in an exam hall full of fear that if you make one mistake... You could miss out by one grade. You could end up going to a university in a different country, getting a different job, marrying a different person, and suddenly there is a fear that comes in. If I make just one mistake, my life future pathway could change. And the examination system in education, I love education, I love school, I'm so happy to be back, but the examination system teaches kids for about 14 years, that a mistake is the worst thing that you can make. And that is absolutely wrong. Ted goes on, or Ken, not even, uh, Ken goes on to say, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you will never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to make a mistake. And our big word, cacarophobia, actually means the fear of failure. The fear of failure. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. It came into my head last week as I was getting ready for, for the message about listening and about guidance. And I began to think about the fear that God's people sometimes have that they will make a mistake. You ever feel that? You won't have to nod viciously. Do you ever feel that, that, that if, you, if you try something and it goes wrong, you'll be the worst in the world? Do you understand the fear of failure, the fear of making a mistake, making a fool out of yourself, the fear of stepping outside of God's will? Have you ever heard that one? 
I am scared of a decision to make and I'm scared I'm going to step outside God's will. And a lot of Christians live with that fear that if they make a particular decision, God will be angry with them. And I think if we, if we believe that or if that's our viewpoint, then we've got a slightly messed up idea of who God actually is. At the start of lockdown, we got these. We got eight of them. And they are a delight. These are Samuel and Rachel and Sarah's chickens. Banties, no, no, no less. Um, that's, uh, that's Martha on the left and Murph on the right, just so you know. Um, they're a beautiful thing. Samuel goes out and he tends to the hens every morning. And one of the things that he needs to do is put a little hook on the door. Do you see up on the top, uh, I won't work on the TV, but you see up on the top left there, the door has a little hook and a chain on it. And that door is to stay open all day. There's wire mesh so that the hens can't get out. But that little hook needs to be put on there so that the door doesn't flap back and forward in the wind. Now Samuel does an amazing job looking after the hens, feeding them and putting their water out and scraping up the poo and all that sort of glamorous poultry farmer lifestyle. But now and again, the one thing that he maybe forgets to do is just put that little chain. Is that right? Sometimes I forget to do that. When he forgets to put the little chain on, I chase him around the garden and then beat him repeatedly with a big stick. (laughs) Don't I? Do you think I would do that? Hopefully not. But yet, whenever we live with this irrational failure of making mistakes, we think that God is going to do that to us. If I look out the window and the hook's not on, I say, son, will you go out and put that hook on? And he goes out and he puts it on, and that's it. Very, very minor mistake. Very, very gentle instruction to to put it right. But some of us live with this idea of God that if we make the slightest mistake, he will beat us. He will turn on us. We, we drop the ball and we don't get a second chance. Kakorophobia, the fear of failure. Whenever you're in the car and you've got sat-nav on and you miss a turn, you don't get a message saying the car will self-destruct in 30 seconds. You've made a mistake. You get a message and it says, what does it say? says redirecting or rerouting or recalculating and you then get another turn to make to get back on track. Again, that is like the way a loving father deals with his children. That's what God is like. If we step slightly off track, we're walking with him, we're in fellowship with him and his people, but we, we just stray slightly off, he will gently bring us back on again. He will gently bring us back on again. Do not live in fear that one step wrongly taken is going to result in you being squished. And this is the power to paralyze the church, this fear of failure. This idea that if we do it wrong, it will be a disaster. And then you will get a lot of God's people scared to do anything. We've been given the great commission to go into the world, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach. But we sit sometimes and do nothing because we are, we are scared that it might fail. Jesus talks in Matthew 25, he tells a parable about guys who he had given talents to. And, and two of the guys invested their talents. They did something with it. 
They got a different amount back. One of them got two talents back and one of them got five. But the point was not how much they got. The point was they they did something with what God, what the master had given to them. But there was one guy who said, I was scared. And so I hid your talent in the ground. Here it is. That is a bleak prospect to stand before Jesus and have him say to you, what did you do with what I gave you? And don't limit what you can do for the kingdom to something like preaching and leading worship. What did you do with the, the, the creative gift that I gave you? What did you do with the character and the personality that I gave you? What did you do with the money that I gave you? What did you do with it? To then say to him, I was scared. I was scared that I would mess up and so I hid it. Here it is. You can have it back. Why does the fear of failure have such a grip? on us. A couple of reasons. First one is a worldly obsession with success that has infiltrated into the church. Where we look out at at a sort of a business model of doing things where it's all about numbers, it's all about success, it's all about bums on seats, it's all about bigger buildings, it's all about fancier websites, and we we use that as our metric of success. And if we have a wrong idea of success, we will then be very, very fearful of failure. We'll look a wee bit later at a proper biblical definition of success. Another one is a concern about what others think about us. Anybody have a little fear of failure because you're scared of what others might think? I'm guilty. I fell in Tandragee one day. I got out of the car. Do you remember this? I got out of the car, um, parked about halfway up the street, and there was a whole, just a whole world of things that were against me. Tandragee has a hill at about 89 degrees steep, okay? So we have the hill that, that was against me. It was wet. There was a lot of sort of brick dust and dirt on the ground on the street. And when I got out of the car, I put my foot on a manhole cover. And all of those things and the devil conspired against me and I went down, and I mean right down on the ground in my school clothes at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Horrendous. My first instinct was not, you know, have I hurt myself because when you get to to the, the 40s decade, falling isn't so good anymore. It wasn't, have I hurt myself? My first instinct was to look around. Did anybody see that? Did anybody I know see that? Are there teenagers right now with phones enjoying this? Uh, We have this instinct as well about failure. If somebody sees me mess up, I don't know about you, that is something I battle with. I really do battle with that. What will other people think if I try this? And it doesn't work out. So this, this, this drives our fear of failure as well. A concern about what others think. And on a more positive note, here's a good thing about failure. A good thing about why failure is such a big deal. It's because we have dreams and we have desires. People who never fail or who never feel failure don't ever do anything that they value. You understand what I mean? If, if, if you're not doing things that are important to you, then failure, if they don't work out, it's not that big a deal. Whereas if you're a person who has dreams and who has desires that burn within you that are God-given, then you will find that the fear of failure will increase 
because you want to see these dreams come to fruition. Do you, do you get what I mean? So I'm glad that, in, in a way, I'm glad that failure is a reality for me. It is something that I think about because it means the stuff I want to do is real stuff. And it is good stuff. I have failed and I will fail again. And the reason is because I'm a dreamer. I'm an optimist. I'm hope-filled. I always think it'll work. <laughs> I always think it's worth a shot. And therefore, as, as I bring and as we bring dreams into reality, there will be more and more opportunities for things to fail because we like to dream and we like to try things out and see how they go. Uh, for any of you that did reframe, and if you didn't do reframe, I would highly, highly recommend it. Even if you just watch it on your own, it is brilliant. But for any of you that did it, in episode four, Eugene Peterson had a little snippet. Eugene Peterson passed away uh, about a year ago. Um, the man was just, just a giant in, uh, in the scriptures, in, in, in theology and in teaching. And he has one of the best voices. His voice makes Clint Eastwood and John Wayne sound like wee girls. He's got this crazy, gravelly, rough voice. He's a joy to listen to. But Eugene Peterson had this little clip in, in Reframe. And he said, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is that there are really no heroes. The stories are full of people like us who do stupid things and they're still in the story. Nobody gets ejected. Nobody gets thrown out. I love that. I love that. The Bible, the story is full of stupid people like us. And we do stupid things. And yet we don't get ejected. I wonder if we brought the world's idea of success to the Bible, would we have allowed Paul to be an apostle? Would we have allowed Peter to be the leader of the gang in the book of Acts? Or would we have said, because of your failures, you cannot continue in this role? The Bible is full of people who make failures. And then Dan Allender, who is another tremendous writer, uh, he says in his book, Leading with a Limp, which I highly recommend, he says, I can hardly name a leader in the Bible who didn't fail radically enough to warrant being removed from leadership. And he lists them, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Peter, Paul, all failed in a way that in our day and age might have seen us say, you're not up to this job. Go find something else. We'll demote you and give you a lesser task to do. Did Jesus ever fail? Hmm. I like playing with you. Did Jesus ever fail? Well, it depends on your definition of success. In Mark chapter 6, he could not do any miracles in his hometown except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He went to preach and teach and do miracles and there was very little response. Did he fail? By the world's standards of failure, yes, he did. By their standard of success, even in the church, and I, I read a lot of blogs and articles and books about leadership and church planting, and even that Apply that to Jesus. In this case, you went to plant a church, Jesus. You went to tell people about the kingdom of God and nobody showed up. Nobody listened. 
They would count that as a failure. But here is one of the most important things that I'll tell you today. I'm going to pack a lot in here, and you can listen to it again. But one of the most important things I will tell you is the biblical definition of success. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Not successful in the world's eyes. Faithful. The issue is not how many people came. The issue is not how many lives were transformed, how many were healed, how much money came in, how big a building. The issue is, were you faithful? Were you faithful with what he gave you? Your responsibility is to be faithful. We'll see later on the outcome. That's God's responsibility. That's not yours. You be faithful. When we stand before God, we will not be asked, were you successful? We will not be asked, I don't believe, for any numbers at all. <laughs> any. You'll not be asked, how many people did you lead to Jesus? That's a threat that, that sometimes hangs over Christians. How many people did you witness to this week? No, you'll be asked, were you faithful? Were you faithful? Did you take the calling and the gifting that you were given and did you faithfully use it? Let me do the rest is what I believe God would say. So, finally going to read from Matthew 14. Why did you go to it? Matthew 14. Are you cold? Do you want the heat on? It's all right. So we shiver out there in the hall, but I'm just going to ignore it in case it was, I didn't, didn't see it right. Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> This is Peter's first failure, apparent failure. I'm going to read from verse 23. After Jesus had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. It was like me walking down the street in Tandragee. I was buffeted. The wind was against me. I didn't mention that as well. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. And these are the guys who went on to lead the church. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt Peter's failure, or was it? Did Peter fail on this occasion? It'll say a lot about my attitude and my heart if I look at this and I say Peter failed. If I focus in on the, the fact that he began to sank, sink, if, I, if that is the heart of the story, that says a lot about my heart. Frequently, whenever you're a wee bit tight with money, 
or whenever you're um, being miserly, the name Scrooge comes up. And I always say, if somebody ever, ever says, don't be a Scrooge, I say, hang on, do you know who Scrooge is? Because Scrooge is one of the greatest pictures of redemption and salvation in any book outside the Bible. Scrooge became a great man at the end of the story. All right? What, where is your focus? Where is your heart when you read a story? Is it on Peter's apparent failure? Because when I read this, I'm sort of training myself to say, no, Peter heard the voice of Jesus. That is not failure. Does anybody think that's failure? No, that is not failure. Peter obeyed the voice of Jesus and got out of the boat. Do you want to call that failure? Because I don't want to call it failure. I see that as obedience and success. Peter walked on water. Have you done that lately? Has anybody done that ever apart from Peter and, of course, Jesus? And we would, would we dare to think of this as a failure? And Peter also experienced the saving power of Jesus reaching down and grabbing him and pulling him up. I don't think Peter failed on this occasion. I think there were 11 failures in the boat. Yeah, they were sitting. If I was given the option to insert myself into this scene, it's just like, okay, you can go back in time and you can be in this scene as it happens and you can be any person you want to be. I wonder who you would choose to be. I would not choose to be Nathaniel sitting in the boat saying something along the lines of, Peter, just sit down and stop this silly behavior at once. I would not be Andrew, Peter's brother, sitting in the boat saying, oh, he's been doing stupid stuff like that since he was a kid. I would not want to be Thomas sitting in the boat doubting and thinking he's not going to make it. I would not want to be Judas sitting in the boat thinking that coat cost three shekels and he's going to ruin it by getting it wet. I would not want to be Philip sitting in the boat saying, I told you that wouldn't work. I would want to be Peter out of the boat, out of the boat, okay, out of the boat. In Northern Ireland, there is a wonderful Christian pastime of sitting in the boat and criticizing those who get out of it. I don't want to be the 11 in the boat, good as they were and, and well as they did. I do not want to be one of them. Peter got out of the boat, and I can sort of picture, and I'm going beyond what Scripture tells me, but I can sort of picture uh, as he gets back in and he's dripping wet and sort of head hanging a bit, I can picture the others looking at him just as if to say, Peter, will you never learn? No, they failed. They failed quietly and privately. Their failure went unnoticed. Nobody saw it. Nobody criticized it. Only Peter knew the sort of public shame as such of stepping out and doing something and in front of everybody else beginning to sink. But the worst failure is not to sink in the waves. The worst failure is to stay in the boat whenever the master has called. Failure is not the problem. All right, church, failure is not the problem. Fear of failure is the problem that causes you to not do anything. Failures are normal and natural. You've had them before, you'll have them again. It's the fear that cripples us and allows us to do nothing. Peter's second failure in Matthew 26 was a failure. Definitely was. If you want to go to Matthew 26, I'll, I'll pull a few verses out of there. 
Matthew 26 is, of course, the story of his betrayal. Sometimes failure can come to us when we're overconfident. And Peter had told Jesus, I won't deny you. Peter had told Jesus, I'll die with you. Everyone else might run and, and, and deny you, but I will not deny you. He had an overinflated sense of his own ability. And at the end of Matthew 26, it says in, uh, in verse 74, he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. How often do roosters crow? Anybody want to tell me? Because like, like once a year, you know, is it once a? That's every day, every day in life for the rest of his life. Peter probably heard a rooster. Okay. Every day in life, he was just in a culture and an environment uh, where, where there would have been lots of chickens and lots of roosters, and it was unlikely that he went through many days in life without hearing a rooster. I want to tell you something, folks. When you fail, and it's one of the things we're going to see now, when you fail, you need to deal with it. You need to allow God to deal with it because you're going to be reminded of it again and again and again. And if Peter doesn't allow Jesus to deal with his failure, then every day, every single day, he will be reminded of it and he will feel bad about it once again. Whereas having allowed Jesus to deal with it, as we'll see, Peter then could hear that rooster crow every morning and just ignore it and know that he's experienced the mercy of God. There are two responses to failure in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Because there's another disciple who failed as well. And his name was Judas. Judas and Peter both failed. Judas, a betrayal. Peter, a denial. But they both failed. But their responses were very different. Judas isolated himself. Got filled with guilt. And tragically ended his own life. Peter's response is very different. God's response was to go to the beach and make breakfast. I love that. Whenever Peter failed, Jesus went after him. And he went to a lot of trouble to go after him. <clears throat> and it's a passage that we've preached about, talked about before. I'm not going to dwell on it. That's what God does when you fail. The, they, the devil wants you to think that when you fail, God abandons you or chases you around the garden with a big stick or doesn't want to talk to you. But I want to tell you that when you fail, God comes after you. And when he finds you, he builds a fire and he makes breakfast. And he calls you to him to be restored. That's God's response to failure. What about our response to failure? A couple of bad responses to failure. One is to move on quickly without learning anything. I can't remember who this quote is from. I think... I think it's Dan Allender again, but he said, you can't go around failure. You have to go through it. Once it happens, you can't skirt around and ignore it. You have to go through it. 
and to move on quickly without reflecting or without learning from your failure is a mistake. And another mistake to make is to be sort of, you know, stick your chin out and, and, and just say, well, I didn't really care about that anyway. To be cynical and to pretend that whatever it was wasn't actually that important. That is not how to deal with failure. What did Peter do when he failed? Four things that I want you to see, and I'm nearly finished. Four things. The first thing that Peter did was he grieved his failure. If you try to move on quickly and you overlook it and you fail to grieve the failure, you're missing out on the process of what God wants to do. He grieved the failure. Whenever that rooster crowed, he wept bitterly. Whenever you read uh, in Mark 16, you find an obscure little verse that the disciples were mourning. They grieved. Peter grieved what he did. He didn't just shrug it off and say, well, whatever, you know, I've messed up. Jesus is dead. It's all over anyway. He grieved it. You need to grieve your failure. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Grieve it. Peter grieved his failure. David grieved his failure. When you read Psalm 51, you read of a man who is grieving over the failure that he has committed. Second thing that Peter did, so important, oh, so important, he went to his friends. Only noticed this or only was made aware of this as I was reading over stuff yesterday. After Jesus has been crucified, in the remainder of the Gospels, Peter's never on his own. I don't know what you do when you fail. I want to sort of go into that. See that little cupboard at the back that's affectionately known as Scott's house because it's all Scott's stuff that's in there. I want to go in there and just pull the door closed and hope that nobody sees me. I want to be alone. That is wrong. That is wrong. Judas went alone. Now this is very weighty and serious. Judas went alone. Peter went to his friends. When you read Mark 16, verse 10, the disciples are together. Peter is with his friends. When you read in John 20, you'll find Peter in the upper room with his friends. When you read John 21, you'll find Peter fishing with his friends. He goes to his friends. Church, when you fail, find your friends. Find your friends and talk about it. James writes about how we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other. I don't know if you've had the experience of failing and sharing that with people that you trust. It's a powerful, liberating, healing experience. I recommend it highly. Don't try to deal with it on your own. Go to your friends. Third thing that Peter did on the beach then that morning was he allowed Jesus to restore him. He entered into the process. This is not an overnight thing. He had to grieve. He had to be with his friends and share it. He had to be with Jesus and allow Jesus to do that deep heart work of restoration. Because if he hadn't allowed Jesus to do that, he would have taken his old ways of living and his old failures and all the guilt associated with them into his ministry and he would have just been a train wreck. You have to take the time to allow God to restore you from what has happened. And then he continued his ministry. He didn't quit. Proverbs 24, 16 wonderfully says, Though the righteous fall seven times, they 
rise again. I don't know how many times you've failed for me. It's more than seven, and it will be more than seven in the future. The righteous fall seven times, but they keep getting back up. And Peter fell, and he fell publicly. Everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about it. The disciples knew. The Romans knew. The people living in the city knew. Everybody would have known about Peter's failure. And he could have just said, I can't handle the shame of this. I can't handle people saying this about me behind my back. Oh, there he goes, thinking now he's the leader of the church, but I know he denied Jesus. He could have just said, I can't take this. I'm going to quit. He got back up again and he continued his ministry, even though everybody probably that he ever preached to knew that he'd failed. It's so important that we don't quit after our failures. And God uses Peter's failure to build the church. Jesus says to him in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, he says, when you have returned, before the denial happened, he says, Peter, when Satan's going to sift you like wheat, but when you return, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to use your failure, Peter, to build the church and to build up your brothers. So if we want to overcome failure, three things that we need to have. I've talked already about having the right definition of success, 1 Corinthians 4.2. Talked about having the right response, the response of Peter, to grieve, to go to your friends, to allow Jesus to restore you, to continue your ministry. And then finally, you need to know who is responsible for the outcome. Again, from Reframe. I hope the frequency with which I quote this thing will make you go and watch it if you haven't watched it yet. Andy Crouch in the last episode says, the agent of cultural change is God, not me. If it's up to me, I will be caught up in anxiety, striving, stress, and ambition. But if God is at work, if the grace of God is present, even when I fail, even when I mess up, then that actually frees me to be much more creative, much more fearless, actually, strangely, more willing to take risks because it's not up to me to make this succeed. I'm called to be faithful. I'm called to get out of the boat. Jesus is the one who needs to keep me above the water. I'm not responsible for the outcome, and neither are you. And when you realize that, that it's up to God to do the work, then you are free to be creative, to take risks, to try things. If we are afraid of failure, we will never do anything for the kingdom of God. Never. I want to give you finally the guarantee of success, which sounds contradictory, doesn't it, at the end of all that? Talking about failure and how to process it. I want to give you a guarantee of success, biblical success. Um... One of the things you know that we've been praying about on Tuesday nights that we're pushing hard on is to get a unit out there to establish a counseling center in Tandragee. We've brought it to the church. We've prayed about it. We've, we've discussed it. We've looked into what, what it might cost to do it. We are in contact with, with the state agents regularly, <laughs> very regularly, every day. I'm an absolute pest. Once I get a bee in my bonnet about something, I'm just a puke. Every single day, any word yet, any word yet, any word yet. I want to tell you that I will guarantee you 
listen to me now and I'm being I'm not being arrogant but I'll sound arrogant I want to guarantee you that will not fail that will not fail we also would love to get a hold of that unit over there and, and, and reopen a coffee shop at some stage. The timing of that is unknown. Obviously, whenever you're preaching with a visor on, opening a coffee shop is not going to be that easy. But I guarantee you, it won't fail. We would like, we've been talking about um, working with some of the young people, the young adults in the church and those that we've encountered through Table Fridays over the years and, 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 and broadening out and, and doing some sort of alpha course possibly with them over the winter or, or some new way of, of, of pulling them together and ministering to them. I guarantee you, it won't fail. And here's why. Anything that is done for the kingdom of God with the motive of love never fails. Love never fails. So if you do something for the kingdom of God and a year later you lock the door and you say, well, that's that. It's not working. You have not failed because you did it out of love and love never fails. Okay, so if we open a counseling center out there and and we, we fund the opening of it and get it established, why are we doing that? One reason and one reason alone. We love this town and we love the people in it And we are doing it out of love, not out of a desire for success, not out of a desire for growth or increase or whatever. We are doing it out of love. Love never fails. And no matter how long it runs for, it is a success because the motive of the heart behind it is love. Yes. And if we start an alpha course uh, on Sunday nights or Friday nights or whatever night we decide to do it on and we run it over the winter and we start off with five people and we finish up with three people, it is not a failure because we did it out of love. We did it out of love. Love never fails. And no matter what the outcome is and what the world's metrics say about it at the end, it's not a failure because love did it. You got me? Love never fails. And it's one of the greatest ways to discern your own heart, your own motive in trying something new for the kingdom at the very base of it, am I doing this out of love? And I tell you, if you are, no matter what the outcome is at the end of it, it is not a failure because love never fails. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. Father, we thank you for your awesome faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that we are back together in this place this morning. We thank you that... You want to restore all of us who have experienced failure. We thank you, Lord, that you come after us. You come after us with a a bag of coal and a box of matches and a few fish. You come to the beach and you come after us to restore us. Lord, will you help us, Lord? Help us not to be scared. Help us not to be afraid of failing. Help us to pick ourselves back up again seven times, eight times, ten times, twenty times and to step out continually motivated by love and faith to bring your kingdom to those around us. We just praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. Amen. Amen.